This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I'm so excited, you guys. I know I say this every episode, but Selma Blair is here. And yes, you know her from Cruel Intentions and Hellboy and Legally Blonde and introducing Selma Blair on the Discovery Plus channel. You also know her as a muse to Karl Lagerfeld, and we're going to cover a little bit of that. She's the mom to Arthur, and she's also now an author. Mean Baby is out, <laughs> and we are going to talk about the title of this book, Selma. We have to talk about the title. <laughs> I mean, how can a baby be mean? But yet, in fact, I have that ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. I am a mean baby and I will wear it like a badge of honor from days gone by. I wish I had it in me to be a mean baby. Still, it comes out. <laughs> you talk about your eyebrows as a baby. <laughs> Sorry. This is such a great story. My eyebrows, I could liken to Brooke Shields and mm -hmm. make myself feel very, very beautiful at a young age. But the mm -hmm. forehead... As my mother would say, I say forehead, but I still try and emulate my Philadelphia mom and say forehead. Um, <laughs> and people will laugh, but it brings my mother closer to me. Right. May she rest in peace. I had a tiny forehead. And I dare say it was a joke, but I'm not sure. But that it had to be kind of rubbed to make way mm -hmm. for my face. <laughs> so maybe that is, I don't know if that is an old wives tale created by my mother, the old wife. Wife, I like that. But I had read it in our mm -hmm. Scavulo coffee table book that mm -hmm. Renee Rousseau also had this charming affliction. <laughs> so maybe it was my mother's way of like carrying something close to me because I don't remember any forehead rubbing episodes. Mm -hmm. But then again, I would have been a baby. I'll take it. I believe it. I'm very hairy on the face. You also, lady, though, I'm just totally changing the subject right now. Thank you. Thank I, you. I don't, I don't even know how to follow that up because you're a hard I act to follow. things a little oddly. You know, it's just, you know, I'm such a fan of Raymond Carver and in no way do I speak like him, but I try to frame my day like mm -hmm. it's going to end open-ended like a Raymond Carver short story. Do you ever think that? <laughs> Uh, you know, like, I don't know where to go with this. Drop a bomb, mean baby. There's a certain um, cruelty almost like that you can turn something that's comfortable to me, but not real. It's just a word. It's a reading thing. Do you know what I'm trying to say? We've already gotten off track. Go ahead. That's okay. Going off track is fun. That's the whole point of this. But it does bring me to your love of story because I think there are probably some folks saying, wait a minute, what's Selma doing writing a book? But you've always been a big reader. You've always kept journals. You wrote your first book, I Summer, when you were six. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, there is the dog. I Yes, I always. I mean, as soon as I had a pen, which I found for the first time, I had a whole house. But we had a junk drawer with pens and broken pencils and nubs. And I don't know why I never thought I could take it upon myself to use that. It was the first time, honestly, as the baby of a family, you just aren't thought of to make sure you have the notebook and this and that. Mm -hmm. We went to the Four Seasons and next to the bed is a little yellow pad and a pen. Mm -hmm. And I could have it. 
it was like something from the borrowers or the littles, you know, it was just for me, a little tiny pad. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'll write my autobiography. It's just the right size for a six-year-old me. So I had these pages just for me. And I wrote about what I knew at six, which was love and handsome boys and a lifeguard with holes in his gym shoes. And I spelled it all wrong, but my mother really was enchanted and I couldn't believe it. That there was something, these few words, she proclaimed, good. And, you know, they were. She was a reader herself. And I think she really did want to write. And I think she was impressed that I would just string some words together that were maybe not sophisticated, but they were true. And they were simple. And she saw something and encouraged. Then I kind of had the fear in me afterwards that I'd produce something. So I went down to the basement and finished I, Selma in a notebook, but came across it maybe in eighth grade Mm -hmm. when we were starting journaling in school. And I was so mortified by all the complaining I was doing in I, Selma, of all the pain I was in. It was really just about that eye pain and teeth pain. And I was afraid I was fat and how I couldn't run and all these things very telling and I was embarrassed and I threw it away and I would do that. I have tons of journals and some I would throw away embarrassment and shame and some I kept on and they were reference points for this book. So how old were you when you discovered Joan Didion? Because you are a really big Didion fan. I think everyone is a Joan Didion fan. My gosh, Mm -hmm. I discovered Joan Didion in 1979 Mm -hmm. when my mother bought a navy blue Stingray Corvette. And I dare say maybe Joan had a 1968 or 1969 Mm -hmm. Stingray, but my mother's was the last year with that beautiful front curve, you know, that swooping curve that the Stingray had. And I remember seeing a picture of Joan that I now own, I bought Mm -hmm. one, but the the famous picture of Joan with the cigarette against the white stingray with her sweater dress and her sandals. And she just was so cool and young, but yet old. And and she reminded me of my mother and I knew my mother had the car. So immediately I put Joan and mother together and they were both very spare with their words and quite journalistic, even the way they spoke. But I read probably slouching toward Bethlehem, I don't know, maybe 20. Mm -hmm. I read it again when I came to California and I had read everything, but it was really a year of magical thinking once and which is obviously much later that stole my heart so much. And to think she could write the year of magical thinking while her daughter had died Mm -hmm. and never mentioned Quintana Roo's death. It stayed so focused on John Dunn and that experience, that telling exactly and his head on the bar and the drink in their apartment. She set things so clearly and without sentiment, sometimes to the point I was gobsmacked when I learned that Quintana Roo was dead when she wrote that. I mean, gobsmacked with appreciation for her ability to focus and remain committed to her salvation in the clarity of her writing on this. Of course, you know, when things fall apart, it took so long for me to even realize that was originally someone else's quote, you know, because I so associate her. She told that time of things falling apart of the center, not, you know, the center will not hold Mm -hmm. it. She could turn a phrase like nobody else and make an understanding so deep for our generation. I love everything about her. I've never met her, but I keep her, her pictures here on my wall. That picture I bought before she died when I decided I want to write a book so I could have St. Joan looking over me. Oh, but I do wish I met her, but oh, I would disappoint. I would disappoint. So it's best I didn't. I dare say I won't now, because as I like to say about people, she's dead. 
Um, I don't know. My mother used to do that. Well, we're going to get to your mother in a second. But the part of why I bring up Joan Didion, beyond the fact that I share your fandom, I think she's pretty terrific. Is oh, that I she... hope people don't ever think she's overrated. She is not. You know, now you get the backlash because everyone loves and everyone knows Joan. And people say, oh, it's all Joan Didion. People just grab at Joan Didion. It's like, what are you? you twit. Yes, I will grab it, Joan Didion. She has earned that. And it is always, always appropriate in any situation you can find a Didion quote. Well, and we're just going to ignore the people who don't get it. Right. I mean, that's that. But I know. Joan was also diagnosed with MS. And obviously that is a big part of this book is your diagnosis and your learning to live with MS in all of the years that you were misdiagnosed. And as you've said in the book, you can't speak for everyone with MS because it's different for everyone, but you can show up. And you show up in a really big way for yourself and your kid and the community. And those of us who don't really know that much about MS, and that's a really important part of the book, but Joan Didion is part of how you got here. And I don't think that's necessarily a leap that everyone's going to make. Can we talk about Joan and your mom for a second? Because they are these two women. They're iconic. They're larger than life. You even describe your own mom, Molly, as being sort of like the first movie star you ever met because of the way she presented herself in the world. And I love the idea. (laughs) My mother to me is unbelievably glamorous because I was lucky enough that she was a woman that loved to make up her face very much like a stage actress. And she was, I think, because of things that happened, trauma in her past that she never really spoke of. She was an incredibly private person, even with me. She never wanted to show any cards of weakness. And she was an incredibly brilliant, witty, and not altogether kind person. She did not suffer fools. I felt very much in the club being her favorite, which she openly admitted to the other siblings. And they understood. (laughs) They understood favorites. Because she was difficult and she was my favorite. So it was okay. We had each other. I put a lot on her. I put a lot on her shoulders as the person, my idol. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, the criticisms, they were much weightier than perhaps other people would deem it or what my sisters would think of her criticisms because she was every egg in my basket. I mean, that is all I cared about. I figured when I was young, when my mother dies, I will follow suit. You know, there will be no purpose for me to keep on living. And she did want me to write. She did encourage things. I hadn't read enough. And so I had to keep Mm -hmm. reading. And she really encouraged that so that I could find a way to write and that she would edit it one day. And I never thought I would be able to do it without her, but I did. Mm -hmm. And I wish she was here for it. Oh, I went off on a tangent, didn't I? I'm sorry, me. That was a good tangent. But hey, was it your mom who introduced you to C.S. Lewis or was that school? Gosh, you know, it was my mother who introduced me, of course, to C.S. Lewis with the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I have no idea how I found Till We Have Faces. And Mm -hmm. I will say that beginning line of that book to myself all the time now. You know, I am older now and I have nothing to fear from the gods. And she goes Mm -hmm. on, you know, my body is a lean carrion and I do not have, but I have a son. So I do have something to fear from the gods. But whenever Mm -hmm. I am in real fear about something, I will think of 
the heroine of Till We Have Faces, who's basically like a goddess, you know, mm-hmm, myth mm-hmm. of the Psyche and Cupid, which I, I'm not familiar as much with Greek astrology. My mother was, and I have no idea how I found this book. I'm old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. I have no husband nor child, nor hardly a friend through whom they can hurt me. And that is what I felt I would feel whenever my mother died. Mm-hmm. That I would be free because there would be nothing to attach me, nothing anyone could attack or do. Because my mother was all I cared about. But as cruel fate would have it, I dearly, dearly love my son. So I'm still able to be hurt in this world. But other than that, those words have just been very comforting for a fearful person. You know, the thought that I would get there where I would not fear the anger of the gods. I don't know how I found it. It was one of those things where you're in the bookstore and I would just search and search and open that front page. And sometimes it just gets you. And I would give it to everyone. And I don't know if they felt the same way about this book, but I did. And then a fan and friend gave me a first edition of it. Sent oh, wow. it. She read how much and we became good friends after that. That's a very cool story. Let's talk about sort of the theory behind story. I mean, is that how you ended up being an actor on top of it? Is wanting to inhabit right. someone else's story? It was never, never a consideration that I could be an actress. I cannot believe I became one. To come from a, to a Hebrew school where so much of my day was spent reading the Torah, we did not get into books except for Anne Frank and... The Holocaust books, you know, and so we didn't get into authors other than Jewish authors. And when I showed up at Cranbrook and there was a teacher and we were reading Salinger, the first book, and he is on the trench coat and these papers are falling and he has blonde hair. And immediately you're set in a book. And I just enjoyed it so much. I still didn't think to write. I just was like, I love reading this. (laughs) And it would have been a natural thing, but my own self-esteem was such that I didn't focus. But then when I read that Raymond Carver said he didn't have the ability to write, you know, a full novel, he Mm -hmm. was a sprinter. You know, Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, maybe I could do it. Is there any such thing as a half a paragraph short story? Because that was all I had the focus for. So it took me a long, long time to write this book. And in the meantime, story was happening to me through acting. So I took it where I could get it. Mm -hmm. But it was really just auditioning for a school play because I wanted to read these plays. I just was so excited. I never had these opportunities in this parochial school. And I was a terrible actress. I was a such stage fright. But it was actually, I got in a school play that was directed by Todd Kessler, who did Sopranos episodes and is an incredible writer, Damages, Bloodline. These are his. And he was my dear friend. You can see it in the acknowledgments. I didn't want to put him in the book because he one-ups me by being so amazingly talented, prolific, well-known, and everything I haven't yet been in this writing world. But he and I did the Mrs. Robinson for a one act. And a teacher actually poo-pooed me and said, Martha Butler said, oh, that's disgusting. You know, you're getting undressed in front of the children. It's so risque because I would wear the bra and underwear. I just felt fearless when I was in a good story. You know, it was Mm -hmm. Mrs. Robinson. It wasn't me and Todd to have such a brilliant person by my side. The words could do anything. And then I thought, okay, I'm not qualified for much. I can read. I can write a little, but I can read on stage in my head. And, you know, so I did approach it as a reader, not an actress. It was just a way to get in more reading time and get it, you know, brought to life. Your acting career also brought you into the world of one of your mentors, which I actually didn't know this until I read your book, that Ingrid Shishi 
Interview Magazine was your mentor. It's amazing. Ingrid did. I was the West Coast, like kind of roving editor, but I was on the masthead. I mean, she did Uh such wonderful things for me. And I would just, God, if it were now with Instagram and I, I would really toot my own horn, but I did not know of such horns to toot nor, you know, but she did give me a real meaning in my days. I can't even recall how I met Ingrid. Maybe it was through doing a piece for Carl and a photograph he came to do in my house. And we had such a time together and talking about books and the people that she was so invigorated by. And and she was such an unlikely candidate to be such a tastemaker of fashion and everything. You know, she was very bookish and glasses and not a stitch of makeup and really rat's nest of a hairdo. But she knew I was depressed. She could tell instinctively. And we had lunch immediately after this. And she said, you are a writer, right? You don't know. You don't know. You're a watcher. And so she put me to work right away. She said, you're depressed. You got to write. I said, I can't. I don't have anything to write about. She said, well, good. Here, write about these people. Find people. Find people. Interview them. And so I did. And it was torture because it's torture to show up sometimes among the people you admire. And she never once even criticized me. You know, there was such an environment over there that you really did get so inspired to meet these people, interview them, that just by the mere act of talking about them, you're not having, talking to them, you know, your own writing, it it takes a back seat. It was for them, these creators. And I was behind some of it and finding people. It was the most special place I had been allowed in the most rarefied air that she took me into and meeting the designers, the the wardrobe artists of our lives, you know, Versace, Mucha, Carl and Inez and Venud, all of them doing Mew Mew campaigns and having my moment of modeling, which must have pleased my mother to no end and, and me. But it was the writing. It was the belief she had in me. And I wish she were here so I could write for her. Her essays are so incredible. She was such a thinker. I'm much more kind of just in my heart, heart on my sleeve as I've begun this journey. But it's all for Ingrid and it's all for Carrie and my mother. These are my trifecta women. But Carrie really led also just by the way she was and her giving to me and all of us. I mean, she had people living in her house on her grounds ad nauseum. I mean, everyone was there. James Blunt. There's a picture of him at my wedding, which was in her backyard. And I didn't know who he was yet. She was helping (laughs) build him up because he was staying in her guest house writing his first album. So by the time I got those pictures back, I was like, holy smokes, that's James Blunt. Love him (laughs) at my wedding. But Carrie, you know, she was a collector of brilliant friends. And to be included with those people by these women, I appreciate it now more than I ever had any idea then. And Carrie Fisher, this is the Carrie you're referring to, is mm-hmm. Carrie Fisher. She was also a writer. She was known very quietly as a script doctor in Hollywood, but she's also written a number of books, all of which are screamingly funny. So I mean, if, of course, Postcards from the Edge. When I was little, I read that whenever that came out. And, you know, I read her and Nora Ephron. I mean, there were so many women that were really had a very solid, warm approach to their heartbreak and their misfortunes or the nature of pain and relationships and connecting it really presently. And Carrie did that. And with movies, it went back and forth with Carrie. She was so present in my viewing life. But she did. Of course, she wrote Postcards from the Edge and 
then surrender the pink, which might have been. Didn't she do that? I remember that being a bit naughtier. Maybe I'm, but I did read it. it maybe that's just the title mm-hmm. that's throwing me off. And then Shockaholic, of course, mm-hmm. and The Princess Diaries. There's so many, and I open them, and even though they're not the, the weightiest of books in length, she really packs a punch. Mm-hmm. And she taught me just by being that um, sometimes, you know, a conversation can work out, even if it's with yourself in a book. You know, she has so many fractures in her life that were so beloved by all of us. She turned that. And also, she's very honest. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of humor in these books, but she's very honest about who she is oh, as a I person. I mean, she was the pioneer for so many of us mm-hmm. for emotional health, mental health, things we were afraid to call it then. Things certainly my mother was afraid to call it, probably why I know so little of her life. Mm -hmm. even though I don't think she was actually mentally ill, but I think people accused her of that. And it takes away a lot of power. I don't think she was mentally ill, but I think it made her uh, distant. And she was afraid because I was also a raw kind of person that needed this very immediate connection with people. She was worried for me. She had a dream that I was young and told me that I was publicly burned at the stake. So I think when I did become somewhat of a public figure, she then got worried and wanted me Mm -hmm. to come back home. She had these real kind of scary feelings of what could happen to a woman. And we loved Carrie even before I met her for her ability Mm -hmm. to bring that to life and with some humor so people could really stomach it. And we owe her a lot about being able to talk about this openly. And I did talk about real raw things in this book Because of probably the permission Carrie gave me and the permission to find some laughter, even in the things that there is nothing to laugh about. Maybe not laughter, but just the side of it that that's ridiculous, (laughs) that you can find as funny. I'm still learning it. You have a very wry sense of humor in this book, and I don't want people to miss that because there is a lot. You cover a lot of your life in under 300 pages. Right. You do not waste words, young lady. But there's a lot. And obviously, we're going to let people experience the book for themselves and read what you have to say. But what was it like for you as the writer sitting with your life experience? I mean, your body is evolving as the MS progresses. This was probably the most brutal Mm -hmm. assignment in my Mm -hmm. life. So far, you know, I went into the stem cell. I had a bone marrow transplant, Mm -hmm. but autologous, which is I used my own marrow instead of having to go outside myself, which was also very poetic that after all these years, I could still go inside the deepest part of me that hadn't been touched by some shame or fear is how I interpreted it to rile up the whole nervous system and that it was within me. And when I did that, there really was some appreciation that I could pass in this somewhat risky procedure to halt the progression of this really aggressive, long, long flare I had of MS. So I took stock and I knew from, funnily enough, social media and things where I had written very simply, but but honestly, as I could, and the support that was given to me mm-hmm. before stem cell, when I was even officially getting sober for the last time after a public and private humiliation, and that people were there more than not, so that I could kind of pick myself up was 
staggering to me. I've never had that in my life. I've only beat myself up more or been beat up more when I've made a mistake. So to be honest and immediately accept and acknowledge and take responsibility for what I had done, there was such an outpouring and help that I really used. And there's a girl, Ty Barani and Julia Chastain and the real young girls that kind of picked me up and supported me young 20 something, you know, that showed me incredible grace. And I wish Carrie had been alive, but I created her in my mind for myself. Like, what would I do for my son in this moment? What would I do? And people were giving me the support and saying, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I thought, God, if even they think I should, maybe someone will read it and maybe they want it. And maybe they find with my simple words that there is some saving grace for them, the little Selmas out there. And so as I was let going of the old Selma, it was time to write something. But how do you write when the stories were kind of held in time and kind of an eight-year-old mean baby mindset? It had to get very simple. And I also, I did discover truths. You know, you think, ah, you know the old stories. And then there was a rape I didn't even ever think about for years or the way I might have treated someone, what led to the breakup that Jason Schwartzman really felt he had to leave me. These people weren't at fault. It was a real reckoning. This wasn't a tell-all of my mom might have hurt me, although it can be read that way. And some people might say, oh, abusive, not. That wasn't my judgment. It was just the fact these things affected me, things she felt or said. But we also had a grand old time, often. I mean, we sat in bed and ate the precious faces off gummy bears and looked at them with magnifying glasses as we watched America's Funniest Home Videos and downed martinis. We had a good old time. We were like Edie and Edie. (laughs) Before, as a teenager, we were just a very kind of theatrical duo. And I loved her. And I miss her. I miss her. As her brain was kind of going, and mine was with MS, but I was looking to rebuild mine as I am the daughter, and it all went in good time. That was my mother's biggest fear, that I would go before her. She loved us so much, and her biggest fear was that the children would go before the parent. So there's no real tragedy in my life. My child is alive. I'm still alive before my mother. Everyone's happy. I'm going home like next week to bury her finally. She died in COVID and writing this book in COVID alone. And to answer your question, you said, oh God, you had this procedure in your writing. Yeah, it was hard. My brain was simplified to the point that I could not recognize it. I could not type because that still, I still can't type on a computer keyboard because that push pull of two hands together, working, it's like padding my head rubbing my stomach and it sets off a whole trigger of like speech block, spasms, spasticity. So to realize I was finally ready to write a book I pitched it, outline, my book agent really was in there in the trenches, like really trying to focus for me, help me. And then I get to writing it. And it took me three years to recover from stem cell. I couldn't see at all from MS damage and then maybe chemo, things got blurry. So I couldn't see and I couldn't type. So this entire book was written on a yellow legal pad with pictures sent into my book agent. Every time I had a writing session of 10 pages, 10 pages, 10 pages, I'd send it in. God bless her. She would type it because I couldn't type. I longhand wrote this whole book or on my iPhone in notes and then would forward it. That's amazing. That is amazing. A huge thank you to the village that came together to help mean baby 
find the earring <laughs> but it was really <laughs> like it was like wow you know everyone like dropped the birthday party and helped me try and physically figure out this book in a disability equation that I hadn't even thought of and I had finished the documentary the stem cell and COVID and my mother died and it really was and I couldn't see mm-hmm. and I couldn't eat I was vomiting from, I think it was the carbidopa levodopa that was helping with some spasticity for, I was projectile vomiting. So writing the book was excruciating. And I'd say to my book agent, you know, I've been out of practice for a while and I'm half blind at the moment. And okay. And she's like, just do it every morning. And then, but what do you do when every morning I couldn't stand the daylight? So I couldn't write until nighttime in my whole recovery. So there were so many things that I was purposely or not purposely procrastinating. It took a lot to get this on the page. And I was terrified. I was terrified how personal, but that is what I needed to give to see if, to be of use, to be of use. (laughs) You really showed up. You showed up for yourself and you showed up for readers. And I cannot wait for (sighs) folks to get their hands on me, maybe, which is out now. So Selma, before I let you go, though, because we have to talk about the packet, like you've been on the cover of Vanity Fair, you've been featured in Vogue, you've done fashion campaigns, and now your face is on the cover of your very own book. I don't know which means more to me, that I love this picture (laughs) by Peggy Sirota so much, and I'm so young and beautiful, and I have to remind myself like, hey, that's a lovely girl. First of all, Peggy Sirota did this cover and I shot this actual, this actual photograph, I shot this on the day of the Legally Blonde premiere. I had a photo shoot and I think it was for interview and Peggy did it. And I remember she was commenting, she's like, oh, you turned sideways. How are you so thin? Where's your guts? And I was like, I don't know, right? They're very thin, but then I turned the other way and very wide. So it's like the Selma and Blair. But anyhow, so, and that was also the day I met Chris McMillan. And then I wore a dress by Ralph Lauren that looked like a bow tie, my mother told me, and showed up and cozied up to the beautiful Reese at the Legally Blonde premiere. And so that was a great day. So this is on that cover cover, but inside how precious Mm -hmm. the end pages has letters I wrote to my mother, a picture of my son in here, a picture of me in seventh grade with Ed Begley Jr. in the background on the TV. I mean, it's just, the real deal. <laughs> and then even the necklace. There's a necklace that's so important that my mother gave me. So folks, if you take the dust jacket off the book, you'll see the imprint of them. And it's a gold necklace that means so much. It was my happy sad Mm -hmm. because I was a moody child who didn't feel well a lot and didn't have a lot of words how I do now. I am a chatter box. But this had you know, the frown on one side. And my mother, for all I might slay her in this book at times for being um, like maybe a tad neglectful, it might read, but she did the most important thing for me. One, she told me I always had to have a book with me. It would save me at the DMV or spiritually. And she gave me this necklace when I was six. And one side was a smile and one side was a frown. And it had a little bob haircut like I do, a little bull haircut. And it was such a, again, revelation that I could just wear that frown side and people would know it was just a trickier day for me. And that she gave me that acknowledgement that those moods were equally important. That's a damn fine mother. That's something to remember. And I love her dearly. 
It yeah. does come across. <laughs> I said, bitch, there's a little Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds in me. You know, if she lived nearby, I would certainly ding dong ditch her. Like, yeah. it, I Debbie. But no, my mother, she was, um, she was an incredible mother and made me feel very safe and very much like a child. She thought that was important. But at the same time, I was the child that was much more mature then than I am now. And I think part of it is because I could feel her pain and I wanted to be an ally instead of a child. And now I'm definitely learning how to look back at that and forgive myself for some things I held myself much more accountable for, you know, than I need to. But also real responsibility of other things, of course. And, uh, you know, that's what we do is we go through things, the things we thought, oh, that certainly made me a hateful person. And then I look at it and say, oh, you were five. You know, I really thought I was an evil person for that earring trick I did. I mean, my whole life, I really was, if people say I'm a nasty bitch, I deserve it because of what I did to that poor mother. And um, and then you look back and you go, oh, my son has done worse than that. And I still love him. Yeah, you've written a really human story and you've lived a really human life, Selma Blair. Yes, this isn't my idea of a celebrity memoir, but please buy it so I can be a bigger celebrity and I'll write a bigger (laughs) memoir. (laughs) I don't know. That sounds like a pretty great plan. Selma Blair, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Mean Baby is out now and it's a great story and you really should go get it now. (laughs) So, so much. I love your podcast. I love being on it and thank you. Thank you. Hello, readers, and welcome to another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to grab when you stop in to pick up Mean Baby by Selma Blair. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And this week, my usual book buddy, Margie, is on vacation. So I have a special guest with me here that I plucked from my own store to talk about books. Becky, hello. Thank you for talking about books with me this week. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to join. Well, I feel like you are sort of the perfect person to talk about celebrity bios because you are kind of my pop culture touchstone when it comes to books. You read a lot of them, and I'm going to guess you have something fantastic to offer. I think I do. The first thing that came to mind whenever I read the premise of Selma's book got me thinking about Carrie Fisher, and Mm. she wrote so many incredible books. All of them very either semi-autobiographical or straight memoir. Her first one is Wishful Drinking, and it is fantastic. It's an intimate, hilarious, but also sobering memoir told with her self-depreciating sarcasm and trademark wit. Wishful Drinking was adapted from her hit one-woman Broadway show, and it is her first memoir. In it, she shares what it was like growing up as the child of Hollywood royalty, 50s icons, Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, the explosive scandal that came when she was just two years old, when her father's affair with Elizabeth Taylor was revealed, Mm. what it was like becoming a princess from a galaxy far, far away at the tender age of 20, and then having her likeness, action figures and shampoo bottles and everything in between. Uh, She talks about some of her relationships like marrying, then divorcing, then dating. Interesting way to go about it. Yeah. Um, Paul Simon. And then as she likes to say, learning that the father of her daughter, Brian Lord, uh, forgot to tell her that he was gay. Oh. Just fun little, 
<laughs> stories like that. And all of these are told amidst her struggles with addiction and depression and multiple trips in and out of various mental institutions. This, as I said, is her first of three memoirs. She also wrote two semi-autobiographical fiction titles, one of which, Postcards from the Edge, became a movie with Shirley MacLaine and Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Wishful Drinking is a must-read for fans of old Hollywood, celebrity tell-alls, and honestly, just hearing someone tell it like it is and finding the humor in every situation, even death. You will laugh out loud and tear up all while smiling, especially if you pick up the audiobook read by Miss Fisher herself. Mm-hmm. This is simply one of my favorite celebrity memoirs and leaves you wanting more. So if you pick this up, definitely get Shockaholic and The Princess Diarist afterwards. Lovely. Oh, that's fantastic. And that is Wishful Drinking by Carrie Fisher. Mm-hmm. I had a feeling that that's one you were going to pick because you have thrown it my way a couple of times. So nice pick for Top of the Heap. Um, I do have a couple that I'm going to throw into the mix as well. And I'm going to do them back to back because they are written by my two favorite Jennies in the world. The first is a book called Little Weirds by Jenny Slate. Love her. Oh, I love her. She is just amazing. I was already a huge fan of this comedian, and I sometimes slash often fall into a rabbit hole of YouTube clips and interviews when I just need a giggle or a pick-me-up. She just has this perspective and countenance that is so charming and singular, and this book invites you into her brain in wonderful ways. It's a collection of essays, technically, I guess, but it's also memoir and microfiction and little bits of poetry that is earnest and strange and funny and vibrant. It's also a slyly perfect self-care guide. In a world that often demands that we make ourselves smaller and less, Jenny Slate gifts the readers with permission and tips to make our smallness, smallness impactful and to make ourselves more. I love that. Mm-hmm. This book is a breath and a grin and a tiny little tear and a snorting laugh. And reading this feels like petting a baby rabbit while watching an upside down sunset. <laughs> and that is Little Weirds by Jenny Slate. The other book I chose is also by a wonderful Jenny and also has a, a similar humorous approach like Miss Fisher, like Miss Blair and Miss Slate. And it is furiously happy. Oh. Uh, I know. I know. It's so good. <laughs> furiously happy. A funny book about horrible things by the wonderful Jenny Lawson. This is a hilarious collection of essays about family, friends, animals, and health. I can open this book literally to any page and if not laugh out loud immediately, at least genuinely smile. You'll read about taxidermy. You'll read about lack of pockets. You'll read about zombies. You'll read about publicly misreading the name Latoya as labia. (laughs) Yeah. And you'll read about visiting kangaroos in Australia while dressed as a kangaroo. You'll also get a true and beautiful take on mental illness. Jenny Lawson's struggles with depression and anxiety is well known and broadcast here with an honesty and candor that connects so, so well. And the title Furiously Happy is a call to arms to combat the stigma of mental health and the woes of the world. This combination of transparent vulnerability and absolute ridiculous hijinks is why I've returned to her books again and again. Please, please, please pick up Furiously Happy, a funny book about horrible things by Jenny Lawson. So good. Such a good good pick. And yeah, honestly, all three of these just pair so well, I think. Yeah, I think they should live on the bookshelf with Selma Blair, just have their own space. And even in our bookshop, we should just have funny ladies telling wonderful stories 
and inspiring everybody. But that is all we have for today. Thank you, everybody, to listening to Poured Over. Please rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode and follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester or peek at my Instagram at bookmark79, and that's B-O-O-C-M-A-R-C, because I am so, so clever. (laughs) And my special guest, Becky, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for inviting me. And as Mark said, please follow us at BN Westchester. We'd love to inspire you. Absolutely. Thank you all, and happy reading. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.